Hey there, Heritage. I want to welcome all of you across the network, and I am just super excited as we continue in our Rights of Spring conversation to have with us today Chris Conrad. And, and Chris is not only one of my dearest friends, but he also serves as the regional superintendent for the Great Lakes region of which we are part of with a, about 155 other churches. And you can read more about him in the bio in your note guide, but I can think of no better person to lead us in our conversation today than this man. And brother, I, I know that as we step into this co conversation around confession, that's a significant task. Yeah, thanks for giving me the hard one. Happy I to do it. so. Yeah. <laughs> but listen, I know you're up for it thanks. because I know how, how close you walk with God, how intentional you are in relationship with other people. I know you're up for it. And I also know that Heritage is ready for the conversation. Amen. Amen. But I recognize that, con that confession is not necessarily a popular activity, yet it's essential. It's essential to our spiritual journey. We can't have relationship with God without it. So as we begin this conversation, I want you to lean in. I once heard somebody say that confession may be bad for your reputation, but it's always good for your soul. And that is so true. So true. So Chris, today as we just create a space to come before the Father and you speak from your heart and you speak from the Word of God. And I'm so grateful you're spending this time with us this weekend. My prayer is that God would speak in and through you and that he empower you to continue to lead us closer to him as you share. So let me, get, let me just let you get right to it. And Heritage, would you just give a warm Midwest welcome to my friend Chris? Thanks, man. Awesome. Okay. Well, here we go. Strap yourself in. We're going to be hitting about Mach 3, okay? And uh, but we're going to have some fun doing it. I just want you to know, I'm so incredibly proud of you. I don't know if this morning is your very first morning at Heritage. I don't know if this is your first time to ever experience a Heritage service or not. Depending on your length of time, you might be familiar with some of these things. But I just want you to know why I'm so incredibly proud of you. Because you are making a difference, not just right here in Rock Island, but you're making a difference throughout this entire region. As a matter of fact, so much so that I had to make a list. Now, I've known about this for some time, but I had to remind myself again. I just want to remind you of the difference that you're making. Because if this is your first time or if this is, uh, uh, you know, your regular routine, regardless, you might not recognize wow, we really are making a difference throughout not just this region, but the entire state. Let me tell you what I mean by that. You're making a huge difference through Vida Nueva, a, a specific Hispanic ministry right here. You're making a difference through the Kiwanis Center campus, through the Bendendorf campus, through Bridgepoint, which is going to be a hub of ministry throughout the cities. And I'm just so excited for you about that. Through the Esperanza Center. And you may not recognize this, but you are the largest church in our network of churches here in the state of Illinois. And for decades, you have been making a significant difference and helping other churches that are not quite the size of Heritage to do what God has asked them to do in their community. So you're just doing a tremendous, tremendous job throughout this state. You really are. And I'm just so grateful for you. So do me a favor, turn to your neighbor and say, actually, you're better than you thought you were. Go ahead, turn to your neighbor and say, actually, you're better than you thought you were. Okay, now, there's a pastor down in Atlanta, his name is Andy Stanley, and he makes the statement that there, there are tensions to manage and there are problems to solve. Now, let me piece that out for us if we can. I, I've been married 28 years and to my fifth grade sweetheart, yes, we met in fifth grade, and um, and I married way over my head. I don't deserve it. But there are tensions to manage. Let me, let me tell you what I mean by that. One of us in this marital relationship is a messy. The other is a clean freak. 
One of us is always on time. The other is continually late. Uh, one of us uh, is very spontaneous in nature. The other likes to have things planned weeks in advance and let those things be in triplicate, okay? Now, see, I'm watching you look at, those of you who are married, I'm watching you kind of do this with your spouse right now because you understand that. You get that. Well, here's the deal. That is not a problem to solve. See, in the first 10 years of my marriage, I thought that was a problem to solve. Finally, I recognized, no, no, that's not a problem to solve. That's attention to manage. It's attention to manage. Now, if you happen to be a parent, let me help you in that area as well. Stuff that you already know. I'm not really giving you anything you don't know, but you know that there are times as a parent when you have to discipline your child. You give them, you give them consequences, and if you don't obey, these are your consequences. And you have to allow those consequences to play themselves out. Absolutely. You also know as a parent that there are rare times when you have to show grace. Not because you're being lazy, not because you're, you're usurping your authority or responsibility as a parent, but you just sense that in this moment, the best thing to do is to show grace. That is not a problem to solve. That's attention to manage. Here's a third one. Work. I don't know if you happen to work in a cubicle. I don't know if you work um, as a mechanic or some, in some trade. I don't know if you work for John Deere, if you work on an assembly line of some kind. I don't know what it is that you do during your day as far as a, a living and income is concerned. But this much I can tell you, what I can tell you is, is that work is a really good thing. As a matter of fact, it's part of God's design for us. Now, I'll tell you, my wife works inside the home, and I'll take my job over her job any day of the week. Uh, she homeschools our two girls, and um, I would be sitting someplace in prison having murdered the two beautiful daughters that I have. I could not homeschool, okay? So I understand, I, I understand that I have great respect for people that work outside the home and inside, but here's the point. The point is we don't want, if we happen to work outside the home, we don't want our work, as wonderful as it is, to end up taking over our entire lives such that we don't have time for God. We need to make room so that we can come to things on Wednesday night at Heritage right here at Rock Island. We need to make room so we can invest in our relationship with God. We need to make room so we can invest in our relationships with our family, with our spouses if we're married, with our children if we have them. We need to make room for those things. So work is a good thing, but it can't overtake our lives. Does that make sense? So there are problems to solve, but there are tensions to manage. So why am I wasting your time telling you this? How does this relate to God? Well, here's the thing. God is a loving father. Matter of fact, I'm going to do a little continuum. I'm going to start over here. God is a loving father. As a matter of fact, it's the, that's the first one in your note-taking guide. If you happen to be taking notes, great, it's there. You, you don't have to, but if you want to, that's the first one that's there. God is a loving father. And right there we put in your notes, or excuse me, up on the screen, for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. There is no one more loving than him, which is why we got done singing just a second ago, you broke my chains of sin and shame, and you covered me with grace. God's love and his forgiveness and his grace are immense, and that is true. There is not a more loving entity in the universe than God, and that's true. But on the other side of that same spectrum, not a different, on that same spectrum, he is a holy God. He is a holy God. 
Isaiah 6.3 says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. God is a holy God, and he has an expectation that we would be holy as well. As a matter of fact, 1 Peter 1.15 says, but as he who called you is holy, so you also be holy in all your conduct. And when we're not holy, as we'll see in just a moment, it fractures our relationship with God and it fractures our relationships with other people. Now, how many of you are willing to admit that you have messed up morally, that you've sinned at least once in your life? How many of you are willing to admit that? Okay. How many of you, you're not so sure that you've ever done that, but you're pretty sure your neighbor's done it at least once. Okay. Yeah. See, you're way too excited about saying this to that. Okay. Um, See, our natural tendency as human beings is to downplay our moral missteps. We want to downplay them. We don't even like the word sin. We much prefer mistakes or maybe moral accidents or something along those lines. Now, uh, Sean mentioned that he and I are friends. We are friends. We've been friends for a a good long time now. And uh, we happen to actually run a marathon together. We uh, ran the Marine Corps Marathon years ago together. And here's what every marathoner knows. Every marathoner knows that you have to get through mile 20 to 26. You do all this training beforehand just so you can get to mile 20. And then it gets really hard from mile 20 to 26. But if you, if you pass 26.2, then there's, you get to the finish line and then there's this after marathon party that's just a lot of fun. It's just a lot of fun. But you have to go through mile 20 to 26 to get there. Now, why am I telling you? Because in this message, we have all three of those. We have miles 20 to 26 that are going to be arduous. And then after that, then we get to the, the finish line. Woohoo! And then we get to the after marathon party. All three of those are going to be part of this message in the next few minutes. Okay? Um, here, I guess here's what I would tell you. Uh, there is a finish line, and it will come in about three and a half hours. That's the good news. Um, some of you just broke out in a rash right now when I just said that. Um, But here's the thing. See, we can't short-circuit the process or else celebration doesn't mean anything. See, I I don't know about you, but most of us, when we wake up and just get out of bed and now we're standing right next to our bed, we don't say, "Woohoo! I made it out of bed today. Okay? Most of us are not at that level. Okay? Now, you might be at that level, and if so, congratulations for getting out of bed and getting dressed and coming here today. I, I congratulate you. But most of us... We don't celebrate that type of thing. Most of us, we celebrate when we accomplish something significant. So here's the deal. I need you to hang in there with me through mile 20 to 26, and I'll make it as painless as possible, but you need to stick in there with me so that we can get to the finish line and the celebration of the message. Are you in there with me? Can you say yes? Okay, so here we go. Let's, let's do the hard work together because if we do it, we get to the finish line. Here's facts. Number one. Fact number one, I've sinned. I've sinned. Uh, I've sinned, you've sinned, the person next to you has sinned. For everyone has sinned, Paul wrote in Romans 3. Everyone's sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. None of us are perfect. We've all messed up in some way, shape, or form. Fact number two, sin has a price tag. It costs God something. It costs God something. Yeah, matter of fact, interesting, Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. My sin is a big deal. Now, why is this? Why is it that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins? I don't know. That's just the way God set it up. I don't make the rules. It's just the way it is. 
But a guy by the name of Isaiah, who was a prophet in the Old Testament, was given a, was given a prophecy about Jesus, although he had no idea what this guy's name was going to be, of what was going to eventually happen. And this is what he wrote. Surely he, that is, it was Jesus who did this. Surely Jesus took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we consider Jesus punished by God, stricken by him and inflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. You know, I just have to tell you, sometimes I need to personalize this, not to be egocentric, not at all, but I have to be willing to admit my own sin. But Jesus was pierced for my transgression. It was my sin, not someone else's, although it was for them too. But it was my sin. Jesus was crushed for my iniquity, for the stupid things that I do. The punishment that brought me peace was on Jesus. And by the wounds on his hands, in his feet, and in his side, I am healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. But the Lord laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Sin's a big deal. Fact number three. Not only does sin have a price tag in my relationship with God, but it costs us something, and it costs others something. Well, how does sin affect me? My sin creates a separation in my relationship with God. Isaiah 59, too, the same guy. Your sins have separated you from God. One of the ways that that happens is that my sin blocks my prayer life. Again, Isaiah 59 in this same passage says this. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor is his ear too dull to hear. God does not need hearing aids, ever. He's really good at hearing. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sin have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear you. In moments of honest reflection and, and just pure out honesty, my sin causes shame and guilt. See, when sin first entered the world, and by the way, we're at about mile 22 now, so we're getting there, okay? But when sin first entered the world, the first emotion that Adam and Eve felt was shame and guilt. How do I know that? That's exactly what the Bible says. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7 says specifically that. At that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt what? Excuse me, they felt what? They felt shame. Now, we don't like to feel shame. None of us do. We don't like to feel it. And so because of that, we try and hide or blame someone else. And that's exactly what they did. I love this. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, this is right after Adam and Eve sinned and they felt shame, the man and so Adam and Eve heard the Lord walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord among the trees. That cracks me up, by the way. We're going to try and hide from God who can see anything, right? They hid from the Lord. They, they tried to downplay it. They try and hide from it. And then, and then they do the classic. They, they, they hide, we hide from it, and then we try and blame someone else. And that's exactly, exactly what Adam does. You know, so God asks Adam, hey, Adam, have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? And the man, Adam replied, it was the woman you gave me. Do you capture that? Adam does two things there. First of all, he blames Eve, which by the way, men have been blaming women all for all of eternity, right? We always have to blame someone, okay? And then he blames God. It was the woman you gave me. 
It's amazing to me that God just didn't say, Adam, you're done. Beep. You know, vaporize him right there. You know? I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but I think the most amazing, harmonious app that's been built in the last 15 years is Google Maps. Why? Because we all know, 15 years ago, a husband and wife or a guy and a gal out on a date, here's what happens. The guy's driving, the gal's next. He's supposed to be going somewhere. He's lost, and he knows he's lost, but is he going to admit it, yes or no? Of course not. So the wife or the girlfriend turns and says, honey, are you lost? And what does he say? No, because he's not going to admit it, right? And now with Google Maps, he could say, it's not my fault. Google Maps got us lost. And, and so it, it's just so typical that we, that we blame, that we run, and that we hide. Next, my sin affects others. And you might have picked up on the fact that I'm passionate. The good side is, is that I have a lot of energy for my work. The bad side is, is that I can be very intense. And when that intensity comes out in my relationship with my two precious daughters, I'm, I'm an old man with young kids. You saw their picture earlier. I have a 14 and a 13-year-old at home. And when my intensity comes out with them, it's not a good thing. I, I can remember like it was 20 seconds ago. Uh, it was not that long, a couple of years ago, we are, uh, we're on a, a tiny little family vacation. We ended up with a couple of extra days in San Francisco. And so we're driving around San Francisco and we get caught in a traffic jam in the middle of a Saturday morning, if I remember. And we are caught in a traffic jam right next to AT&T baseball field there in downtown San Francisco. And we're driving, and I don't know why, I, I, to this, I don't know why, but I just got frustrated that I was in this traffic jam. I don't want to be in this traffic jam. I want to be enjoying my vacation with my family. And I get really intense. Now, <laughs> how do you think that affects my wife and two little girls? Not in a good way. You know, it, it, later on when I was debriefing that time with a friend of mine who's a spiritual director in my life, they said, uh, can you help me understand like what you thought that your intensity was actually going to accomplish in that moment? And I said, I have no idea. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. There's always collateral damage when it comes to sin. My sin always affects other people. Always. We think that we're just sitting here in front of this screen and no one else is going to know what we're doing. But be sure that our sin does have collateral damage. It impacts the people around us. So, let me help you. We're at mile 24 and a half. We're getting closer. Let me summarize. Concealing, downplaying, or blaming others shuts off God's work in my life. That's a fact. Just bring all that to a summary. Concealing, downplaying, or blaming others shuts off God's work in my life. But here's where everything can begin to change. Now, I've run the Chicago Marathon nine times. And what happens is, is that when you get close, when you get to mile 22, you turn and you're on Michigan Avenue. And when you turn and you're on Michigan Avenue, what you know is that um, that's me at a water break right there. And, um, 
and you know that you've only got to go down this road about three and a half or four miles, and then you're at mile 26, and you just got 0.2 left to the finish line. And so when you, when you finally turn on Michigan Avenue, what happens is there's a sense of expectation and excitement. The finish line is there. Now, it's four picking miles down the street, but it's there. At least I know it's within reach. And we are within reach now of the finish line. See, here's the deal. And, and the Bible knows that, that confession is hard. God knows us, he kn- and he knows that confession is hard. But what he knows is, is that if we will confess, if we'll go through the process of confession, that amazing things start opening up in our lives, that it really begins to unlock and unleash so many things that God wants to do in our lives. So here, here's the deal. The Bible says in Proverbs 28, 13, this, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who what? Say that out loud again. The one who what? The one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. See, our, our sin does not need to be the end of our life. Our sin does not need to define our life. Our sin does not need to keep us from the future that God has for us. Confession unlocks the door for, for God to work in my life. It removes the lid on my life. That's what confession does. It unlocks the door for all that God wants to begin to do in my life. And some of us are so afraid to confess because we don't want to actually get real when in reality it is the thing that's going to unlock so much of what God has for us. If we'll just be willing to do it. That's why Sean said earlier, confession may be bad for your reputation, but it's always good for your soul. He was so right when he said that. See, our journey begins and then takes a huge step forward through the process of confession. That's why this guy Paul in Romans chapter 10 verse 9 writes, If you'll confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I just have to say, maybe you walked into Heritage or to one of the other campuses here this morning and you've never begun a relationship with Jesus Christ. You've never relation, begun a relationship with the Father who loves you. You need to know his love for you is immense. That's why he sent Jesus to the cross so that Jesus could pay for your sins, so that he could be the penalty for your sin. You don't have to try and earn your way into heaven. Jesus already paid for your way into heaven. All you have to do is confess and say, God, I have messed up. You know I've messed up. I just confess that to you. And God is ready with open arms to receive you unto himself because he's, he's an incredibly loving God and he's just waiting for you to confess so he can wrap his arms around you and welcome you into a relationship with him. That's why he created you so you could be in a relationship with him. His love for you is immense. And it begins, it begins when we just confess. And for some of you this morning, the most important thing you could do is just begin that relationship with God. Others of you, you've begun that relationship. Maybe you did it six months ago. Maybe you did it six decades ago. But confession can become one of those things that, again, we don't enter into regularly because it takes courage. It's not for the faint of heart. And yet, those who confess their sins do so because of this. Because they realize, they realize that what defines them is not their sin. What defines them is God's love for them and what he says about them. See, here's the thing. What happens is, is that when we mess up and when we do something, we need to confess, either to someone else or to God or both. 
What happens is, is that all we can think about is this thing, the way that we messed up, and that begins to define us. That's how we see ourselves. When in reality, how we should see ourselves is a child, a son or daughter, a favored son, a favored daughter of the Most High God. That's who you are. Can I remind you who you are? You are a favored, cherished daughter of the Most High God. You are a favored, cherished son of the Most High God. That's who you are. And if you know who you are, then it is easy. It's easy to, to admit and to confess. It is easy to say, I blew it back there. See, if you think that you're a jerk, then it's really hard to admit that you're a jerk. But if you recognize that you're actually an amazing person who's made in the image of God, who Jesus went to the cross to, to receive you unto himself so you could be in a relationship with him, if you remember that and you recognize that, then you can say, who I am is a child of God who occasionally messes up. And when I mess up, all I need to do is confess that and come right back into a relationship with him. Him. But if we don't remember who we are, if we allow the enemy to try and speak words into our spirit that says, oh, 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 see, you're not good enough. Oh, 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 see, you're bad. Oh, 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 see, you're evil. Oh, 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 so you're dirty. If that's all we hear, then we forget about the amazing love that God has for us. So what does healthy confession look like? I'll give you an example. A guy by the name of David in the Old Testament. He's the king and he's up on his rooftop. And he lives up, for lack of a better word, he lives up on a hill. What's to say that? Because it kind of fits. He, he lives up on a hill and his palace is up on the hill and he can look down. And no one else can see because they have walls around their houses. But he can look down because he lives up on high. And he can look down and he sees that there's this woman there who's bathing. And he can see her. No one else can see her, but he can see her. And lust immediately picks up. And then he says, I want her. So he commits adultery with her and then makes sure that he arranges for her husband to be killed. So he's an adulterer and a murderer and and yet the Bible calls him in Acts chapter 13, verse 22, calls him a man after God's own heart. Now, how do you in the world do you put someone who's an adulterer and a murderer in the same sentence as someone who is made after God's own heart? Well, watch this and you'll begin to see it. Because as soon as David is confronted with his sin, this is how he responds. We find it in the Old Testament book of Psalms, Psalm 51. And David writes this, have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. <sighs> David recognized that God was a God of love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sin. David fully recognized that God was a holy God, that he deserved holiness, but he was also a God of love and compassion. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. David specifically asks God to forgive him. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone, God, have I sinned. I've done what is evil in your sight. And you'll be proved right in what you say. And your judgment against me is just. Notice, David doesn't hide. He doesn't downplay his actions. He doesn't blame anyone else. He takes responsibility. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you, God, you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. See, there's this tension again. David recognized that God is an incredibly loving God, but that he's also a holy God. And that holiness requires 
his honesty. So then he says, purify me. Purify me from my sins and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. David understood that God's ability to forgive him was immense. God could and would forgive him even of the sins that he had committed. God was waiting to forgive him if David would just confess. Oh, give me back my joy again. You've broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sin. Remove the stain of my guilt. See, David understood. Oh, I wish I, I wish I wish I was good enough to communicate this well. David understood that although the guilt that he felt was so real, he also understood that on the other side of confession was joy. On the other side of confession, there is this sense in which he could actually be free from his sin. He was no longer defined by his sin. He was no longer defined as a murderer. He's no longer defined as an adulterer. He's no longer defined as an alcoholic. He was no longer defined as whatever your sin might be, an embezzler, someone who lies, someone who steals. He's no longer defined in that way. He's now defined as a son of the Most High God. And when we confess, we can get on the other side of it and we are free. Our hearts are clean. The weight of, of guilt and shame is lifted off, off of us. We don't carry that around any longer. Our chains actually are broken and we are set free. And there's incredible joy. Yeah, mile 20 to 26 is arduous and it's difficult. But when we get to the other side of confession, there's this celebration that happens and people are high-fiving each other. It's a lot of fun. Can I tell you that when we actually experience God's love and his grace, it's so immense that there is joy in our hearts and we just want to celebrate that. See, the enemy wants to keep us us tormented, but the Father wants to set us free. He who the Son sets free is free indeed. That's what the Father promises. David talks about that. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Don't banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. And then I'll teach your ways to rebels and I'll, 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 I'll help them return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. See, here's the thing. When we confess, we experience forgiveness. And when we experience forgiveness, we just want to worship God with everything we've got. And so we come and people are kind of like, why are you so excited about worshiping God? Oh, because you don't know. There's a freedom that I feel and a joy that I feel because I have been set free and forgiven. See, this is the after marathon party. We come in and in a few minutes, the worship team is going to come back and we have the opportunity just to, to praise God again for all of his goodness. All of his goodness. But can I tell you, post-marathon parties are best done in community. See, confession begins one-on-one -on -one with God, but it often moves from there to, to include others. That's why the guy by the name of James writes, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so you may be healed. Now, why, why would we confess our sins to others? Why would we do that? Well, number one, confession to each other, we confess to each other for the purpose of reconciliation. Can I just be really honest with you? Some of us are holding on to something that we did. We were abusive to someone through our temper, through our mean spirit, through our aggressiveness. We hurt someone in our past. 
Um, so you saw a picture of my much better half. And uh, Mary and I have been married, as I said, 28 years. And we've been married, I don't know, somewhere around six or seven years. And the day that we walked out of our wedding ceremony um, 28 plus years ago, my, my, my mom turned to my dad and said to my dad, I think Chris has met his match. Which sounds all fine, except for the fact that you know what that meant? That meant that Mary is really strong-willed and that Chris is really strong-willed. Now, some of you, you just got married and it's just been marital bliss since the day you guys got married. Just harmonious and you never fight and there's never anything. Okay, Mary and I have had to fight for every inch of altitude that we have in our marriage. Every inch. Now, we're flying at about 30,000 feet right now. Well, I just tell you, we had to fight for it all, right? And so, we're about seven years into our marriage and we're sitting at a marriage council office and we don't have any money. I'm a poor preacher. I don't got any money. And I literally spent all of our life savings to get to this marriage counselor. And it was back, I don't know, sometime in the, in the mid nineties. And I'm paying, I'm paying $120 for every 50, every 50 minute session. And I'm just trying to put our marriage back together. And I could tell I was so excited because I could tell the marriage counselor was about to talk to Mary about, about submission. And there was something in me and I was just getting really excited about it. I could tell where it was going. I, woohoo! And so, the, the marriage counselor turned to Mary and said, now, Mary, I, I want to talk to you about submission for just a minute. And inside I'm going, yes, finally, I've been waiting for this for seven or eight years. This is awesome. Now, Mary didn't respond in what I would call, and she wouldn't call this either, a theologically correct response. But this is what she said. She said, well, Jesse, can I just tell you, I understand submission and I understand that I should be submitting more. But can I tell you, it would be a lot easier to submit if I felt that Chris had my best interest in mind and he doesn't. See, the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that Chris is trying to get his self-worth based on how big and how fast the church that he's leading is growing which I was. So all I am, Jesse, is just a cog in that process. He doesn't really care about me. What he cares about is whether or not I can help him grow this church so that, so that he can get some kind of recognition. About 30 minutes later, I sat in the car and I wept. And I confessed. Not tiny little tears, but I wept. And I confessed to her that she was right. That I was dreadfully wrong. And I begged for her forgiveness. And she and her generosity gave it. As a dad, when I mess up, as a dad, which I sometimes do, I go to Julia, I go to Natalia, and I say, I messed up. I am sorry. Please forgive me. And on the other side of that, freedom begins to happen. See, we need to, we need to go to the person, and I'm begging you to do that. For your sake, it will unlock God's work in your life. And for the other person's sake, I have a dear friend whose father abused her when she was growing up, and she confronted her dad about it, and her dad got so angry about being confronted about it that he totally disbanded her from their family. He died on Monday of this last week, and in the obituary that came out on Wednesday, he didn't even mention her as one of his daughters. I'm begging you to go and make it right. Number two, we confess to each other for the purpose of accountability. 
Sometimes we need other people to hold us accountable. Can I just tell you? Um, I, I, don't, I don't need your sympathy at all. But I oversee a, 155 churches, and it looks like in another two and a half weeks, we're going to add 35 or 40 more churches to that. So it'll be just under 200. A dear friend of, who is here in this service here this morning with me, she and I, along with about 13 other people, are in her PhD program. And I'm the father of two kids, and I travel a heck of a lot, and I have no time. I, I just don't have any time. And someone has challenged me, are you taking a day off? Are you taking a Sabbath? I, I don't know the last time I've taken a full day off. And that's not a good thing. Tomorrow, I'm actually taking a day off. And, uh, yeah, you know, it's funny. So I'm actually flying late this afternoon to go to Orlando, where I have to go for, for, to go to some meetings. And someone wrote me about three weeks ago and said, uh, I am kidnapping you and taking you all day to Walt Disney World. And uh, you're coming with me, kind of deal. Uh, which is very kind of them. Very, very. So tomorrow, Mickey and I are going to take a Sabbath day together. We're just going <laughs> to hang out. But I, the reason, I need to confess that I'm sinning in the area in the area of not taking a Sabbath. And I need accountability for that. Number three, we confess to each other for the purpose of giving God glory. God has been so good in my life. Look at all the sins that he's forgiven me of. And when we do this, and when we do, when enough of us do this, see, here's the cool thing. If we'll actually get real, see, see again, I'm in a different church every weekend. That's my gig. And so I walk into churches where everybody's got a happy face on. Yep, we're all happy and our lives are perfect. Yes, they are. Yes, no, we didn't get in a fight on the way to church this morning. No, of course not. That never happens to us, ever. We never get in fights, ever. Hey, and we all got plastic faces on, and yes, we're all really good. And I, I, I've been to so many of those churches, I just want to vomit, to be really honest with you. And then I walk into places where people are real. And they recognize, I'm a sinner. It's kind of like an AA meeting. Where people are willing to come in and say, you know what? I messed up and I'm not trying to pretend. This is who I am. But the grace of God has also come in and has changed me. So now I'm a favorite son, a favorite daughter of the Most High God. That's what defines me. Ladies and gentlemen, if we'll, if we'll be real, if we'll be people that confess we don't have to tell everybody every last gory part of our story. I'm simply saying, if we'll be people that say, man, can I just say I've messed up too? Then we create environments where people can be real. And when they walk in the door as a first-time guest, they can say, oh, this is a place where I can be real. This, this, this is a place where I can tell, yeah, I messed up with my kids this last week and I was the most horrible mom or the most horrible dad. Or I, I did this at work this week or this happened or that happened. I could, but you know what? God is helping me and I'm becoming better in that. But only because of his grace and his power is that changing my life. We create places where people can be real. And that means that we can share the joy of the after marathon party with more and more and more people. And that's what God wants. So would you mind praying with me? Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you for your amazing love for us. Thank you, Jesus, that you never stop loving us, even when we have messed up, even when we, when we have done things that have caused you to have to go to the cross to forgive us for. Thank you for loving us enough to go to the cross. And now, Jesus, you invite us in 
You invite us into a deep relationship that's filled with grace, that's filled with forgiveness. And God, there are people in this room this morning, they've never experienced that. Man, it's like they're sitting on the edge of their seats right now and they're saying, really? Could I really be forgiven? Really, would God forgive me? And I pray that right now your spirit would just infuse their spirits and say, yes, I've been begging you. I've been waiting for you. I've been waiting for all your life to come to this moment for you to say yes to me. Because I've made it possible for you to be forgiven. I went to the cross so you could be forgiven. Now just open up your heart. I'm ready to flood your life and to flood your heart with love and grace and forgiveness and newness. God, for others, and for, I, for those folks, by the way, I pray that they would make that decision right now. They begin to let you in like they never have before. And that this would be a defining moment. March 3rd, 2019 would be a defining moment in their life. And God, for others, for others who have been in a relationship with you, but they haven't allowed confession to be a regular part of their life. I pray in Jesus' name that right now in these moments, the two things would happen, that they would be just like David. They would confess their sins, first of all, to you in the quietness of their own heart, in the quietness of their own spirit, that they would confess those things to you. And then second of all, that they would follow your promptings when necessary, when you prompt them to confess to the people around them, maybe the people that they've hurt. And they would begin to just say, I'm sorry. And things would begin to be unlocked. Relationships would begin to be mended. Lives would begin to be restored. Do that, we pray. We surrender our lives to you, Jesus, in your name.